Okay, folks, so it is August 5th, 2023, and I know that many of you are wondering what happened to the series about the good news. Now, it's been a few weeks since I've been able to post uh, a lesson on this, and well, it seems that the summer just got away from me. We had to, uh, we were traveling twice, each for a week at a time, and then in the middle of that, I ended up with a severe bronchial infection. Really wiped me out. And so it wasn't very fun. Not a fun way to spend the summer, but thankfully I'm on the mend and I got the proper medicines and everything's going well. My voice is still a little bit off and I have a little bit of a cough, but the point is we are still going through the good news. It's taken a little bit longer than I had expected, but thankfully we'll be back on track here as we move into the month of August. And so the question that I've been asking, which is really how we can open this up again, is what do we mean by the good news? And this, of course, is going to be part three in our series. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what scholars see as the earliest or the original proclamation of the good news. So if we're going to ask, what do you mean by the good news, then we need to go back to the earliest proclamation of that message. And so we remember that when we hear the phrase, good news, what they're talking about is an announcement. It's an announcement about the kingdom reign of God, and so what we want to do is look for that original message. Now, for our background picture here, this is a painting, Giovanni Panini, 1744, uh, around there that it was painted. And this is Paul in Athens, because we'll see tonight one of the speeches in the book of Acts that's going to help us understand, at least round out, what the good news is, is going to be Paul, this speech here when he's in Athens talking to the Greek philosophers. So that's our background for today. As I mentioned, to bring the good news, right? To bring the good news is to be a messenger. But what's the message? And what's that original message in the first century? Right? And then if we look at that original message from the first century, how does that compare to the way that we talk about the good news today? Because over time, what can happen is that we drift and then we, we modernize it and you know, 2,000 years of the church making this proclamation, and suddenly we realize, did we lose touch with what the original message was, especially in our modern Western culture, which I'm speaking from. And so to do this, what we're going to do is we're going to look in the book of Acts, and specifically it's chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. And this is what scholars see as a good summation of what that message may have been, or at least an example of that message. Now, one reason that Acts 34 to 43 really is a good one is that this message is the first time that we see it going to Gentiles. And in this case, it's Cornelius, and he is a centurion. And that's even more important because centurion is a representative of Caesar. And not only Caesar, but the imperial cult. That's the propaganda arm that speaks about the Caesar. And so what we have to do, we have to take that first century Roman Empire and that imperial cult, 
and we have to set it right next to the good news from our gospel. And we'll do more on this next week, but we have to remember that in that first century Roman Empire, it was the Caesar, and it was through his imperial cult that he claimed to be Lord and Son of God and Savior of all mankind. And those early Christians, they're standing right up against that Roman Empire, and they're saying, oh, I'm sorry, you're not really Lord and Savior. Those titles belong to Jesus of Nazareth, whom God resurrected from the dead and has appointed the judge of the living and the dead. Now, this is not going to go over well, right? When you challenge the power of human rulers by pointing out uh, you're not really in control here, it's just not going to go well, and it didn't go well. And so this is a great example here in Acts 10, 34 to 43. Now, now, what you want to do is make sure you download the handout that we provided. There's a link below in the show notes. It'll take you to our website, and you can download this PDF, because these are all my notes about all the verses within Acts 10, 34 to 43, and you want to be able to, um, be able to reflect on these, add your own notes if you want to, but this handout will help you recognize all these details that Peter is putting in there that are going to be very important for us to understand what he means by the good news. Okay, so if you look at your handout, number one, number one on the handout, again, the whole premise of this series is that when scholars talk about the good news, they speak of the kingdom of God and that the good news is about the reign of God. And then Jesus through his ministry, death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, well, this is what it looks like when God's kingdom comes to reign here on earth. And so to hear the good news, this message is to hear about the reign of God's kingdom with Jesus as Lord. Now, what does that mean for us? That's the big question, because how do we... Okay, great, I, I, I switch the the conceptual thinking from forgiveness of sins in heaven to the kingdom of God. Now, but what does that mean for us? Right? When, when you acknowledge God or Jesus as Lord, meaning he has authority over a certain area, when we acknowledge the kingdom of God, our sins that kept us in exile, that's the biblical imagery, the sins that kept us in exile from the kingdom are now forgiven. We are then encouraged to enter the kingdom. This is not heaven in the future, but right now. You allow God's full reign in your life. With Jesus as Lord over all. And then you become kingdom people. And so, we're actually being transformed into kingdom people. And again, it's not, it's not about, well, one day, you know, I get to go to heaven when I die. It's about becoming a kingdom person, transforming into a kingdom person, taking on the yoke of the kingdom, the methodology of the king or Jesus as Lord, and then going out and building, expanding the kingdom of God God's reign here on earth. That's what it means for us. 
Now, how do we do that? How can we understand that path that we have to walk with the kingdom of God compared to the earthly kingdoms? And that's what we want to do. You can compare the kingdoms of the earth, namely, because we're in the first century Roman Empire, the kingdom of Rome with the kingdom of God. So, for instance, the kingdom of Rome, they have the Pax Romana. It's the Roman peace. And the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, claimed to bring peace to the entire world. That's what they promised to be able to do. And so there's a path to that that we find depicted in, in, uh, within the Roman propaganda. And it goes like this. It says, piety. We return to the virtues of old. Place your faith in Rome. So piety, war, victory, right? War, we're going to subject you to our peace. Doesn't that sound wonderful, right? Victory, because it's about us winning war and victory, show our strength and our superiority to you. Then, when we defeat you, then we get to peace. Right? Now, how do you feel if you're one of those countries that are placed under the boot of Rome? How do you feel if you're in Galilee and the Romans took your land because they're more powerful? And now you have to deal with the injustices and everything that goes along with that. So, piety, war, victory, then we get to peace. Now, that's the Roman way, the Pax Romana. But what about the kingdom of God? Well, just like Jesus says, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the earth. So, what do you do? You do the exact opposite. And the kingdom of God is all about covenant. It's all about the covenant relationship. We enter into a covenant relationship with God, and we maintain our allegiance to that covenant. We're in the new covenant, right? It's through Jesus that we enter a covenant relationship with God. So you maintain the covenant. Well, what if I break the covenant? Great. God forgives you. So you have covenant. You have forgiveness. We're not going out to dominate with war. You go out and you forgive. And this is the most radical power that exists within the cosmos, but seems contrary to a human being. In fact, we can't even begin to love our neighbor if we don't understand how to forgive, and that we would hope that they would be able to forgive us for the things that we do to upset people. So it's covenant, it's forgiveness. How about victory? No way. It's justice. We don't care about winning. We care about justice. Now, I think you can see if you're listening to this in the United States, this is not always easy for Americans, right? Americans love victory, and we want to be dominant, and we don't want to forgive, and we want to win. In politics, it's all about winning. Who cares about justice? We want to win. And so you lose justice, right? You cannot achieve peace. But the kingdom of God says when we have covenantal relationships and we forgive one another just as God has forgiven us and we seek justice above all else, then we arrive at peace. That is the path to peace. And this is what you do over and over 
and over as a kingdom person. This is what you transform into. Forgiveness becomes a virtue that you practice. Justice, you seek justice, even if it means you lose at some point to do the right thing. Then we can arrive at a sense of peace that's far deeper than we could ever imagine. And so you have to compare these two things, and I think you can see the kingdoms of the earth are not like our, uh, the kingdom of God, but we are to practice the path that's going to bring us to peace, but we have to do it God's way with Jesus as Lord. Do you have confidence that forgiveness is the most powerful thing? And that's faith. Do you have faith that if I forgive, even when I don't feel like it, that the highest possible good will come out of that? And then, again, you go back to this and you say, the passage we're going to be looking at is Acts 10. It's spoken to a centurion, a direct representative of the Caesar in the imperial cult. And so the message is going to be a direct rebuttal of the imperial cult propaganda and the propaganda of the kingdoms of this world. Who is truly Lord? Well, it's not Caesar. It's Jesus. And the path that we follow in this kingdom is radically different than the kingdoms of this earth. Okay, so that's the, king, that's the path to the kingdom. Now, let's do a little bit of a review because remember that the Old Testament, that's what, those, uh, that's what our Bible writers, the disciples, and Jesus are drawing on. And we go immediately to Isaiah 52, 7. This is the declaration of the good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace, who brings the news of good things, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, and there's the kingdom part. So the good news is the fact that, yes, God is reigning right now, and if you have faith that his reign is the path to peace, then you follow that through your action, not just a belief. It's not just blind belief. So this one's so important to understanding the message that's coming out of the New Testament. Next, though, is the book of Daniel. This is incredibly important, particularly for those first century Jewish folks. Jesus himself, he's going to draw from the book of Daniel. The disciples are going to draw from the book of Daniel. And there's a theme that runs throughout the book of Daniel, and it's all about God's kingdom. It's repeated over and over, and the cool thing is, it's repeated over and over by the earthly kings like Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So if we look at a verse like this, this is just one example. Daniel 6.26, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to proclaim to his people, he says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Now notice, it's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And he's saying, look, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion, there you see the idea of king, uh, kingdom, I'm sorry. His dominion will never end. How long is God going to reign? Forever. Okay? Now, it gets repeated by other kings as well, but you see this theme going on, that the kings of this earth are recognizing God as the true king. Now, then we get to Daniel 7, very important chapter. The first thing we notice, 
Daniel's having a vision, and it says, as I looked, thrones were set in place. Now, throne, one throne? No, thrones, plural. And the Ancient of Days took a seat. God is going to share his throne with another. This is our clue that's coming out of the Old Testament in the, in the Jewish uh, thinking that says, oh, there's somebody else that God's going to share this throne with. Who's the other person, right? Well, if you continue on in Daniel, you get to the Son of Man. This is one of Jesus's most popular titles for himself. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. And he's going to join God on the throne. And God is going to reign, but he's going to have a co-authority with him. And it says, the Son of Man is given authority and glory and sovereign power. So notice, authority speaks of a king. Sovereign power speaks of a king. All the nations are going to worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. How long is it going to last? Forever. It won't pass away. This is what Jesus and the disciples and the New Testament writers, this is what they're drawing from. And they say, that's Jesus. Now that we recognize his full ministry and his ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father, he's the Son of Man. And when's he reigning? Right now. And if you want to enter that kingdom, you're more than welcome. Okay? All right. So, Daniel, very important. Now, this is the good news that God's kingdom reign. He's reigning with one like the Son of Man, is right there alongside with God on the throne. And again, what they're telling us is that Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, this is what it looks like when God becomes king and the kingdom reign is extending now over the entire earth. Okay, really important. Now, number two on your handout. One of the things that we want to know is, again, what was the original proclamation that was going out? What was the message that went out from Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee prior to anything being written down, such as Paul's letters or the Gospel of Mark? So we're going to look at a timeline, and it can be helpful to visualize what time frame are we exploring and how this good news went out and then eventually got written down, okay? So we're going to compare two things here. We're going to look at Jesus' ministry, and then we're going to compare that to the Gospel of Mark. Now, it's widely agreed by scholars that the very first letter that we call a gospel is the book of Mark. That's the first one to be written down, okay? So if we compare these two, this is our timeline. I know it's short because I'm not including Matthew, uh, Matthew and Luke and um, some of the later letters in John and Revelation. But Jesus' ministry is about 30 to 33 AD, and I know there's some disagreement on those exact years, but you get the point. 30 to 33. Now, Mark's gospel, while it's not eventually written down until maybe 65 AD, so some 30 years later, so we've got a time frame. Now, if you think about Paul's letters, well, we don't see Paul's letters until 50 AD. So about 
17 to 20 years. And so you have this gap right here. We have this gap that we want to know the good news is being spread, but what is it? Okay. And then what we're going to see tonight is really from Peter. So Peter, he's the first one to be proclaiming the good news, this announcement. And it's happening from the time of the Ascension to Pentecost, and then all the way up until Paul's time, and we find it in the book of Acts. Okay? Now, just to note something. We know, well, what we see in the church fathers, okay? Mark's gospel is capturing the teaching of Peter. Okay, that's what we hear from a church father named Papias. So, Peter is a Jewish disciple, and he, he's acting just like a regular Jewish disciple, in that he has no intention of writing down all of Jesus' teachings. What you do as a disciple is you repeat them over and over and over until the next generation has them memorized. Then they repeat them over and over and over. That was the way it was done. You memorize your teacher's lessons. You repeat them to the next group of disciples. So he had no intention of writing down all of these teachings. But there were some people then pressuring to say, hey, we want them written down. And what we hear is that Mark then writes them down. So if we take Peter's proclamations of the good news and his teachings of Jesus, and we say, ah, that flows into the gospel of Mark. Mark writes them down, and it looks like there's some indication that, you know, once Peter found out that they were written down, he didn't have any problem with it. But again, not his uh, MO of the way that you pass down the, t your, the teachings from your teacher. Okay, so it's basically Peter. Peter is the earliest one. Since Paul, of course, was originally persecuting the church, it's Peter that is the one who's proclaiming the good news. So, what's the message, right? So, if we go to that earliest proclamation, what is this earliest proclamation? Well, we'll look tonight at Acts 10, 34 to 43. It's just an example, and it's a good example because it goes to a Gentile. But really, the entire book of Acts is about the advancement of the kingdom of God. God willing, in a couple weeks, I'll show you how you can see that with literary devices. But the book of Acts is all about the advancement of the kingdom opposing the kingdom of Rome. Okay, that's in the book of Acts. So what Luke does is as he's putting together the book of Acts, there's a series of speeches. First by Peter, then by Paul. And all of these speeches are telling you about the good news. And what's the good news? Jesus is Lord and King, and he's reigning in the present, right now. It's all about right now, not so much the future. So this is our earliest proclamation. Now, let me show you on your handout. If you look on your handout, I put in here, there's eight speeches in the book of Acts. So I have the list of, of speeches here. And they help you understand what the good news is. Now, they begin, of course, with Peter at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And, of course, the good news first went to the Jewish people. It's their history. It's their God. It's their Messiah. So you have to proclaim it to them first, because they're the ones who really understand what you're talking about. 
So it's First Peter at Pentecost. You can see the language, though. Check it out. That's being used. It's kingdom language. Then you have Peter again Acts, in Acts chapter 3. Then you have Peter again in Acts chapter 4. That's to, to the religious leaders. And then, like what we see in Acts chapter 5, again, still Peter. And what Peter says here is, God exalted him, that's Jesus, to his right hand as prince. Now, the, the word can mean ruler, right? He's the one who's ruling. So God exalted Jesus to be the ruler and savior. He has the power to save you. He has the power to save, to forgive your sins, to transform you into a kingdom being. So very important to, to see this language. Once you know it's there, you'll, it'll jump out at you. Now, again, these are all Peter. Then we get to Acts 10. Uh, we'll talk more about this, but this is Peter. He had, God gave him a vision. Says, you get, I want the Gentiles too. So Peter is considering this vision. We'll look at this uh, more in depth. Then it switches to Paul. So Acts 13, this is Paul and a place called Pisidian Antioch or Antioch of Pisidia. But what's cool about this, Pisidian Antioch, is that place was central to Caesar worship in the East. And so it's an important location for Paul to be giving the speech, but he is giving it to Jews and some, some of the God-fearers there in the synagogue. Acts 14, Paul at Lystra, that's to... Um, Gentiles. And then Acts 17, this is the Greek philosophers. This is a picture, the painting in the background. And what we notice is that Paul says, look, Jesus has been set as judge. Okay. And that's important. It's going to be, that, that's a little bit different than we think about, but one of the main functions of a king back then to that ancient Near Eastern mind is a judge. Okay. So Jesus being set as judge, says he's the one who has authority in the cosmos. Okay, so those are the eight speeches. You can check them out. Read them in order, and it's quite helpful. You'll see how this is flowing along. Okay, but let's go here. Let's go to uh, Acts 10, 34 to 43. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read it through, and then we'll go back and do verse by verse. But the greater context here, what's happening here in the book of Acts, because the story is unfolding for Peter, right? And actually, God is revealing things to Peter. He's revealing the totality of the good news. As this kingdom expands, who's involved in it, right? And this really gives me hope because, you know, Peter, Peter spent all that time with Jesus as a disciple, but he still has to have details revealed to him. So if Peter has to have those details re revealed to him, well, how much more can God reveal to us? And it's really important to know that we worship a God who reveals things. That's why you have to study your Bible over and over and over. But Peter's in a real bind here. He's struggling. What do you do with the Gentiles? And this is, this is one of the things that's going on early in the book of Acts. Peter is having a hard time with it. Can I eat with them? Are they allowed in? Right? Peter has mostly been dealing with the Jews or converts to Judaism or those close to Jerusalem, like the Samaritans. But now he's going to go out and he's going to bump up against the Gentiles. If you look at Acts 
10, 28, and how the story is unfolding, Peter's still thinking about this vision. God showed him a vision of a sheet came down from heaven with animals on it. And we want to turn that into something about food, but it's not about food. It's about people and those animals representing the kingdoms of the world. But he shows him that. And then the very next thing that happens is he's going to go into the household of a Gentile. And Peter says, you are aware that Jews are not supposed to associate or visit a Gentile. So God's giving him a lesson, but he's using the symbolism of uh, these animals. And so he has this realization then that God wants all people, Jew and Gentile, to enter his kingdom. And it's taking Peter a little while to figure out. Okay, so let's read this right here. This is Acts 10, 34-43. So it starts out, And Peter opened his mouth and said, I now completely understand God does not show favoritism, but welcomes from every nation those who fear him and does what is right. The word which was sent to the children of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the word which was proclaimed throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed, about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all of those who were oppressed by the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they also killed by hanging on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and caused him to become manifest, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before by God, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to proclaim to the people to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Okay, so that's Acts 10, 34 to 43. Now I want to do, and this is where the back of your handout really comes in handy, is I'm going to walk through verse by verse, and we're going to take a look at this and flesh it out a little bit. So, verse 34 starts out, Peter opened his mouth, and he says, I now completely understand, and that completely understand, I now realize, right? He's been thinking about this vision that God gave him. I see very clearly, I truly understand. And he's talking about the, the vision previously in chapter 10, the sheet with the animals. And what's he realizing? Well, that God does not show favoritism, right? He doesn't understand right away about the animals. It takes him a while to be revealed. And then he says, ah, God doesn't show, if God is a God of all people, then he doesn't show favoritism, right? And then it says, verse 35, he welcomes. Now, some Bibles say, uh, God accepts. To accept sounds dispassionate, I think. Right? Ah, uh, you're acceptable to me. Uh, yeah, all right, you're good enough. But look what it says. But God welcomes. Ah, welcome. Well, welcome, you know, you can see God with a big smile on his face. 
Those from every nation, right? Just like the father in the prodigal son story, welcoming with open arms his children that have been in exile. God can't wait for you to come home. So he's realizing that this good news isn't just for Israel. Now, you have to notice something, though. So it says, but welcomes from every nation, those who fear him and does what is right. Now, there's a qualifier, right? So to fear, this idea of fearing is not to be afraid of punishment. It's to recognize the awe, the grandeur of God. Like awe is a combination of wonder and fear, right? When you see something that big, it's a li- there's a little bit of fear involved. When you recognize the totality and the reality of God, there's a sense of reverence. If you have that reverence, you will then change the way you behave. Because you recognize that your behavior matters in this world. So those who have reverence for him, right? That's the first step. God wants you to recognize him and and the totality of what he is. And that you turn that into action. You do what is right. So our faith, our confidence in God, our confidence in the kingdom has to turn into doing what's right, right? You can't say yes to God and then go off and do whatever you want. God does not accept that. And we have to be careful when we think that somehow we get, we're going to get a pass for everything. Okay, so Peter, he's realizing ah, all the nations are in. Okay, God wants everybody. You don't have these random requirements to get in. That's what he's seeing. Okay, now let's keep going. Now he's going to go back. He's going to give a little history. The word which was sent to the children of Israel, right? That's where God's uh, sending this idea because it's their text. It's their history. It's their prophets. It's uh, their, you know, sacred Bible. The word which he sent to the children of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So. Those words, proclaiming the good news, that's one Greek word, of peace, right? How do we get to peace? Remember, the Roman Empire's claiming they're going to bring you to peace, and God's going to say, no, I want shalom to come to the entire world, and it's peace through Jesus the Christ. Now, Christ there, remember, that's Greek. So Christ is the Greek word for the, the Hebrew word Messiah. And both having the idea of being, have an anointing, an idea of, of anointing. Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, right? Somebody who's been selected by God for a mission. And that mission is to reign, right? And then there's this little add on He is Lord of all, meaning He has authority over everything. That's kingdom language, especially in that first century, right? Where Caesar said, I'm the one who has authority over everything. That's a frontal attack against that imperial cult. Okay. Verse 37. You yourselves know the word which was proclaimed throughout all of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. Now, John, what's his baptism, right? What is the baptism which John proclaimed? Well, it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now he starts out, repent, because the kingdom of God is near. Repent, turn, get back on the king's program. That's a, uh, in the ancient world, the kings would 
say, look, I'm going to take care of you, but you have to do my will, and then the king goes away. There's parables like this. And then eventually the king is going to come back and he's going to inspect, were you on my program? And so that's what, that's what John's saying. Repent. The king's coming back. Change your ways. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so starting from that baptism, verse 38, here we go. Jesus anointed, or I'm sorry, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And that anointed, that's where we get the Messiah from, or the word for Christ, to smear, to anoint. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. Now, how is he, how was Jesus able to do this? Because God was with him. He's anointed. He has a special purpose to bring, to expand that kingdom. Verse 39, we are witnesses of everything that he did. Now, that witnesses, it's so important because part of sharing the good news is that you are a witness to what God has done, right? We'll see later he's going to talk about testimony. What has God done in your life? So those disciples are witnesses to this happening, both in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem, whom they also killed by hanging on a tree. Interesting Greek word there for tree. Uh, We do have a video on the tree of life. It's a very short lesson because John's going to use the same word here in Greek. Uh, It's a Greek word, exulon, for tree. John's going to use that word, and it's going to talk about this tree the cross is a tree of life. It's, a, it's very cool. And I'll put a link in the uh, show notes below. Okay, so they hung him on a tree. They killed him. But God raised him up on the third day and caused him to become manifest, right? For everyone to be able to see him. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before God, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, here's where it's going to come to a, a point here. He commanded us to proclaim proclamation to the people and to testify that he, that's Jesus, is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And this is where we get back to the idea of judging. Judging as the role of the king. You can judge because you have the authority to judge. So he's the judge of the living and the dead. Okay, now, let's talk about this idea of testifying, because you are testifying, okay? And one thing that's really interesting is the Bible is full-on, 100% about testifying, but not about offering proof or proving that God exists or that Jesus is Lord or anything, because it's the human testimony that's used to spread the kingdom of God. It's a testimony. Because proof, uh, to offer proof, it, it engages our intellect or our reason, right? This is where so many people can't get to the point of Jesus as Messiah because they want proof. They want their intellect. But testimony is different. Testimony engages your entire being. And then that engagement is being transferred to the audience. If you've ever listened to a heartfelt and compelling testimony, right? I was blind, but now I see. 
then you know how moving that can be. It doesn't provide proof. It just says, here's my testimony. Right? It doesn't grab you at proof. It compels your soul. And issues of faith, issues of salvation, those are issues of the soul, not the intellect. So if you feel the need to prove something, right? Because that's the world we live in, scientific world. Show me on a spreadsheet how God exists. The Bible says, don't worry about proof. They don't call you to prove. God calls you to testify. Give your testimony about your transformed life, and then you allow the other person to wrestle with it. Okay? Very important. Now, you may have to think about, how has God worked in my life? What is my testimony to what I've seen God do? But you don't have to worry about proof. Proof is a matter of the intellect. Testifying is a matter of the soul. Okay? Now, so we testify. We go out to the world and we say, this is what I know because it changed my life. And how did it change your life? I had sins, and my sins have been forgiven. I was blind, but now I see. I recognize a greater reality. Okay, God appoints him judge of the living and the dead. And this is something we find in these messianic passages like Isaiah 42 or Isaiah 11. The servant, the one who's going to be the Messiah, he's judging. He brings justice upon the earth. Just like in our path to peace, you have to have justice. And so, in the moment, right now, Jesus is judging. He'll judge the past. He'll eventually judge the future. But it's real right now. Okay? And for, the, again, that ancient mind, uh, the ruler was expressed through judgment rather than just, like, administration. Okay? And then it says, all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a whole bunch here, but quickly, uh, in his name, we find this in the Old Testament, that in the, the name of God, if you call on the name of God, yud heh vav -Heh, we sometimes say Yahweh, that salvation is in the calling of the name, right? Well, what's Jesus' name? Yah. And then it's Yah Yasha, but it was pushed together, Yeshua, and it means Yah will save. So you're, you're basically saying in the name Jesus, you're calling out on the God that has the power to save you. Now he's reigning with Jesus and gives him that authority. But if you have the confidence, if you believe, if you trust that God is the one who can save, then that in itself is a saving act. And the first thing we do, right, because that word believe, it's, it's not proof. It's not like I have to believe something that I can't prove. It's confidence. Do I have confidence in this kingdom? Do I have confidence that God can save? And the first thing he does, we receive forgiveness of sins because those sins are what drives us out of the kingdom. Those sins are what puts us in exile. And so the first thing we do, your sins are forgiven. Now enter the kingdom of God, but you can't just sit there fat, dumb, and happy, right? It's not naps, nachos, and Netflix until the second coming or you go to heaven. No, nonsense. 
you enter the kingdom of God and you become a kingdom person. That's where the transformation takes place. And then we go out on behalf of the king and we expand the kingdom of God here on earth. First in our own lives, then as it spreads around us. It's about those who fear God and do what is right. So there, there are actions that matter in the kingdom, and there are actions that tell you you don't really believe that Jesus is Lord. Okay, there's the good news. Jesus has been appointed the judge of the living and the dead. And it goes through. He kind of spells out how he got there, okay? So what do we see in that little, in those, one, God welcomes all nations. Right? Be careful when you say somebody's going to be out. Jesus has a lot of that. The first will be last. You're judging them out. I'm saying they're in. So we have to be real careful. We're not the judge of whether people are entering the kingdom. It's the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's Lord of all, reigning right now, that he's been anointed. That anointing uh, Messiah, Christ, comes from that idea of anointing with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then the resurrection is an integral part of this kingdom of God because it shows the power of God in the present. It's the resurrection. This is what Paul says. If it isn't for the resurrection, then our faith is in vain. It says, no, he's conquered death. He's resurrected from the dead and he's alive right now. And then when God raises him up to that throne that we saw in Daniel, he becomes now the judge. And he's a righteous judge, A. He's righteous. He can be the judge, though, because he has no sin. He's perfect. And so everybody's judged against the perfection of Jesus. And then, of course, the first step is the forgiveness of sins, which then brings us into the kingdom. And then that blows out and you transform into becoming a kingdom person. Covenant, forgiveness, justice. And that is our path to peace as a kingdom person. So this is what the original proclamation would have looked like. Uh, I would read that over and over and over and over. It's going to help you solidify uh, the idea of, the, of Jesus as Lord, meaning having authority over this entire cosmos, and the judge, and that it's in the present. Okay, so that's part three. Now, next week for part four, we're going to go to pre-NA and we're going to look at that imperial cult because you have to compare what was being said about the Caesar, that the birth of Caesar Augustus was the good news for the entire world and was going to bring about peace. And remember that Pax Romana, war brings peace, yes? And then we say, well, whoa, wait a minute. What about all those people who were killed in the war? Well, that's just, a, that's, that's just the path to getting to peace. It's like, uh, I'm not so sure about that. So we'll look at that next week when we uh, look at the Caesar Augustus and the Imperial cult. <laughs>